Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through his word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. <laughs> I love that. I've just pressed record on my um, voice <coughs> recording, Andrew, and it says that the location is the Golden Chippy, <laughs> which I think portrays the fact that my phone knows where I go to have fish and chips and it's quite near to your house. How does it know this? It knows too much. <laughs> it does it is way true, too there much. is a good chippy just here. Um, there we are, a shout out for you at the Golden Chippy on Grace Pod. Welcome to Grace Pod. We're looking today at um, chapter 12, well, the last little bit of chapter 11 and then the first bit of chapter 12 where Jesus has a whole series of clashes with religious groups. So the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians and the Sadducees. Um, Andrew, do you want to say how this follows on from where we were last week with withered fig trees and Jesus being very upset with the temple as he entered Jerusalem? Yeah, so our section begins 11.27 and immediately they say, by what authority are you doing these things? So immediately what makes us want to look back, what What's he been doing that's provoked this? And we know that he's um, caused a big ruckus in the temple and he's um, uh, criticised the temple and said it's going to be judged. It's an interesting question. Because I think if you went into St Paul's Cathedral and started turning over tables and things, they wouldn't go, oh, interesting, what, by what authority do you do this? Yeah. They'd just immediately arrest you and stop you. But it's like they know there is a kind of person who does have the right to do this. Because in Malachi... There was this prophecy that God himself would come to the temple and purify it. And you know, maybe they're aware of that. They're just saying, Jesus, what kind of authority claim are you making? Are you really the one who has the right to to sort the temple out? And Jesus answers, well, yeah, I do, actually. And Jesus gives a magnificent answer. Lots of these are sorts of trap questions, because if he says, oh, I'm the Messiah, that will raise the temperature immediately and he'll get into trouble mm. Um, But he turns the question back on them and he says, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And it's a brilliant answer. It's so so clever, isn't it? uh, Yeah, he turns it on then. Well, we get their thinking. If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? And they were afraid of the people. So they're caught between these two um, undesirable options in that they know they should have listened to John. Everyone agrees John was a true prophet. And Jesus, if they get, if they say, yeah, it's the same authority as John's, Jesus will go, well, there you go. Um, but if they go the other way, um, they have to look bad because they didn't um, repent when John came. And it's exactly the same trap that they think they've set him. And he turns it back on themselves. So they go, by what authority do you do it? And if he goes... Oh, I haven't got any authority, or just human authority, then how dare you? If he says, oh, it's God's authority, then blasphemy. So he can't kind of can't win. But then he boomerangs the question. Um, do you remember, this is going to show my age, but do you remember Red Dwarf? Yeah, I remember <laughs> it well. Yeah, I love that. It was a sort of, for those who don't know on Grace Pod, this is, you know, some time ago in the 90s, probably. But it was a sci-fi show and a sort of comedy show on, on TV. And there was one episode where they go to a planet that has built-in vengeance. And anything you try and do to somebody else come immediately rebounds to you. So when they try karma. and punch... Yeah. Exactly, it's like a karma planet. And they try and punch someone and then they 
immediately this sort of invisible <laughs> fist punches them and, and eventually they learn the rules of this. And I, I think of these chaps a bit like that planet because every single time they, they aim a bullet at Jesus, so I'm going to mix my metaphors, it boomerangs back, but, you know, they, the same thing that they try to trap him with, he turns the tables and it traps them. And we just see that again and again. Um, so that, that's the first round, if you like, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then before the second round, Jesus intervenes and tells a parable. And we, we're going to spend a little bit of time on this because it's like Jesus' commentary on what's going on and it's the fullest explanation. I think probably people know it, but do you want to just retell the parable briefly if people haven't got Bibles with them? Yeah, so Jesus tells a story which would have been familiar, I think, to his hearers because it's about uh, a man who plants a vineyard, puts a fence around it, digs a pit for the wine press, builds a tower, leases it to tenants. And it's familiar because he borrows it from Isaiah chapter 5 with some differences. Yeah, so so they would know, oh, I get it, he's talking about Israel here and God is the owner and God wants fruit. And uh, you don't need to know a whole lot about gardening to to get the main point which is the the point of a vineyard is fruit and the point of Israel is God wanted uh, a culture which glorified him of justice and righteousness so so that's that's the kind of first point of the parable and in Isaiah's version there's this little wordplay because he says I look I planted this vineyard and I looked for mishpat but I found mishpach and it's a little Hebrew pun that I looked for justice but instead bloodshed. And why in this beautiful vineyard that God has planted, why in this amazing country of Israel that God's blessed in every way, does he not find devotion to him, but instead all kinds of unrighteousness and evil? And and then from this starting point, Jesus gives a bit of a Bible overview. So he, he says, here's the history of Israel in a nutshell. Um, the, the owner of the vineyard sends messengers to receive the fruit. And these are the prophets, you know, please give God the honour that is due. And every time a prophet comes, they beat him up, uh, send him away empty handed. And some of them they treat shamefully, some they strike, some they kill. And this is hmm. Jesus' uh, summary of what has been happening all these years. And the climax of the story of the, the vineyard is this. The vineyard owner had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And, and the, um, everything in the parable is building up to this question. What will the owner of the vineyard do? And I think it's brilliant that Jesus stops to ask a question there because it is the turning point of the whole story. But instead of telling you what happens next, it's like one of those choose your own adventure. Well, you know, you put, it's, it's not choose your own adventure because there's only one outcome. But he pauses the, the video and says, what do you think is going to happen next? And the reason it's so brilliant is that everyone knows what the outcome has to be. So before he even tells you, it's just obvious to you, well, that the owner of the vineyard has to come and deal with those tenants and that they've got to face justice. And I think it's the reason it's so brilliant. And then Jesus says, that's what's going to happen. The reason it's so brilliant is, as the hero, we agree with his verdict before he gives the verdict. Because it's, it's, I mean, actually Isaiah does the same thing in chapter five of Isaiah. He says, what more could I have done from my vineyard than I did? You know, judge between me and the vineyard. And Isaiah's hearers reached the correct verdict. And then Isaiah spells out the verdict. So it, it's a clever device because it, otherwise people might think, oh, God's very harsh in his justice. You know, why, why does... God have to punish people why can't he just be forgiving 
But when you see this horrific story of God's prophets being mistreated and killed and then his son being killed, you think, well, he's got to come and deal with them. Yeah, and that's right. And, and there's a connection, I think, with the last passage with John the Baptist, because Jesus is saying, yes, I'm in a, a line starting with John the Baptist of people calling Israel out. But actually, this line goes much further back. And he's saying, I am the, the climax of this line. And whatever authority John had, I'm the same, but more because I'm the son. And John the Baptist, here, of course, they beheaded. And it's like this shows the respect you have for God and his prophets. Yeah. So, so he's answering the question what right do you have to do what you've done? He goes, I'll tell you what right. I'm the last in a long line of people who demand the fruit that you should be giving. Yeah. Um, and then, obviously, they deserve judgment. Of course they do. Uh, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And that could be the end of it. But Jesus gives a... a, a not just showing the... the the rightness of what he's doing here, but also the stupidity of trying to oppose him. There's this quote from, I mean, this is a very, very important quote from Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing. It's marvellous in our eyes. And Jesus asked them, haven't you read this scripture? And of course they have, because it's one of the most famous Psalms. And in fact, they've even been quoting from it at the beginning of the week, because as Jesus enters Jerusalem and they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, that's a quote from Psalm 118. So Jesus is always saying, come on, think about the lyrics of the song that you've been humming this week and how it ends. Um, and it's, it's kind of cryptic, but the stain the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So they think Jesus is of no significance and lay him aside. He then becomes the absolute foundation of the whole structure it's actually a, a kind of metaphorical way of talking about the resurrection so the fact that you cast me aside is not the end of the story for me i'm going to come back and be right at the heart of the whole purposes of god um and they they ought to factor that in so they're, they're just thinking this is the end but no psalm 118 tells you this is not the end for this stone yeah governments get criticized for short-term solutions but this is a very very short-sighted solution i know what what we'll do we'll just kill the sun because obviously that would (laughs) solve the problem unless of course word gets out that we killed him and then we've got our comeuppance and the sun then comes back from the dead which would really turn the tables yeah i mean the fact that resurrection and judgment go together is it's often in the bible isn't it that if you think that when you die it's the end of it you only have to sort out a problem in this life and then you're free but as soon as you realise that there's a life to come, there's a comeuppance beyond the deadline of your death. You know, there's justice that you face afterwards. And here and many other places in the Bible, the two things go together. As soon as you believe in life after death, you ought to be thinking about where you stand with God for for that life after death or for that post-resurrection day. Yeah. And what's chilling at the end of it is they understand it. He, they perceive that he told the parable against them. So they know, who, who am I in this story? Oh, I'm the, the idiots who kill the son. And this hasn't happened yet. Jesus is predicting it will happen later this week. And having kind of correctly identified themselves in the parable, they then go, OK, let's carry it out. And, and it's just chilling that they, they realise that Jesus is, this is what Jesus is saying and still, verse 12, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. 
And this fear of the people had come up as well in the previous section, verse 32. And we discover that this fear of man, which I think I'm not alone in kind of making... We sometimes say in our family, you know, oh, I'm just a people pleaser. And we mm. laugh as though it's, a, you know, a, a, um, a little quirk. But when you see it in this context, it's chilling because fear of the people, it's, it's a disease which leads you to kill the Son of God. And uh, we shouldn't take lightly our tendency to fear people. It's a very terrible thing. I find this a puzzle, Andrew, because, you know, you've said that they understand the parable. And, you know, you're right, they, they say, they realise it's against them. But how much, how much do they understand it? Like, do they actually think Jesus is the son of God, as in the creator of the universe, and this is the second member of the Trinity, so let's kill him? Because if you really knew that, surely you couldn't think you could get away with it. Do they sort of half, they sort of half understand? I mean, it's a parable, and the thing about, parables is Jesus uses them to conceal and he only explains to the disciples since Mark chapter 4 but it's a sort of device so that it's a bit of a muddle you only hear a story and you I kind of wonder do they half get it but they don't totally get it because you know they they have him on trial for blasphemy and you don't call him you don't say it's blasphemy to say that you're the son if they know that he is the son well, I mean, have, I've often puzzled about this on this parable. What, what do you make of it? Yeah, and there is a verse in 1 Corinthians 2 where, where it says, yeah. um, none of the rulers of this age understood this, otherwise they wouldn't have um, crucified the Lord of glory. And, and I guess the, the Bible has a category for getting it and not getting it. I mean, it, it's the same as in, in Romans mm. 1. Do people know that God exists? Yes and no, everyone According to Romans one, at one level we know this, and at another level we deny it. Yeah, that's and, helpful. And the human psychology is very complex that we can hold at different levels of our personality. Different. So, so every atheist lives like God's there. You know, they mm. they think that morality matters, or you know, uh, relationships matter. Anything matters. So there's a there's a level at which they believe it, and a level at which they deny it, etc. And we all do the same. You know, we we carry. Uh, every time we sin, we're denying the truth, but we hold to the truth mm. verbally. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I haven't got further than that. Apart yeah, that's, from saying that's this very is, helpful. This I think. is just typical of of what the human psyche is like. And as you say, it makes it the more culpable because at one level your conscience is telling you what you're doing, and then another level you're suppressing it because of fear of man or or whatever else. Yeah. Um, so we've got this um, boomerang effect. They try to attack Jesus, but they find it rebounding on them. It's happened with the chief priests and the scribes. Then Jesus tells a parable really about that. They tried to destroy the son, but they're the ones who were destroyed at the end. Um, then we get another encounter. And again, it's a trap. So the, the Pharisees and the Herodians this time want to trap him. Now, we've, we've met these characters before um, together all the way back in chapter three where as Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, um, they plot together how to destroy Jesus. And it's an unlikely alliance because the Pharisees are the nationalists and they want rid of the Romans and the Herodians are the one who is are compromising and in cahoots with the Romans. And they basically hate each other, but they come together for the purposes of attacking Jesus. And they come up with this question, which is, it's kind of a clever one. Um, shall we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And again, it's a question with two answers, both of which 
are a trap. So if Jesus says, yes, do pay your taxes, then the Pharisees will stir up the nationalists and say, look, he's compromising with the Romans. He doesn't want Israel's freedom. If they say, don't pay your taxes, then the Herodians go off to the Romans and say, come and arrest him. He's, a, um, he's an insurgent. So it's a, a trick question. And again, Jesus turns it on them with one of the most famous verses actually in the whole of the Gospels, I think. Yeah, so Jesus um, gets a, a coin. Um, well, um, should we pay the taxes? Um, oh yeah, my favourite bit in verse 15, bring me a denarius. He's, he's like the queen. He doesn't carry money himself. This, <laughs> this is how um, poor Jesus was. Can you bring me a coin? Um, and then he says, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said Caesar's. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And at one level, this is, I mean, there were libraries written on this because this is um, the clearest outline of what Christian political thought should be and mm. it's, you know, formed the basis of civilization. But at another level, when you plug it into the context, it's an amazing answer to his opponents because he's, he's looking at the coin and he uses this language of likeness, which if you're a Bible reader, you'll know from Genesis 1, that um, human beings bear the likeness of our creator. Mm. We're image bearers. And um, so when he says that the coin bears Caesar's likeness, we should give it to him and who and, and give to God the things that are God's basically means, mm. well, you bear God's likeness, so you should give yourself to God. And he's coming back, turning it on them and saying, let's get back to this topic we were talking about, your unrepentance. How's that going? And the, the fruit that he wants from the temple and the fruit he wants in the vineyard and the fruit that you will not give to him. Um, so the, t- the tables are turned again. There's, there's actually, this is all predicted by Jesus as far back as chapter two, where he talks about the wineskins and be careful how you relate to me as um, the new wine of the, um, of the kingdom. And he says, if you try to put the new in the old, and this is this little warning, the wine will be destroyed and so will the wineskins. And we saw at the time that that's Jesus saying, I, I will be destroyed as the new wine, but you will be destroyed as the old wineskins. And this language of destruction, destruction comes both ways in these chapters. So the, the chief priests and the scribes want to destroy him, verse 18 of chapter 11. Um, the Herodians and the Pharisees want to destroy him, chapter 3, verse 6. But the parable warns, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants. You, you can't win. If you oppose Jesus, um, if you reject him, you will be rejected and the judgment will rebound on, on you. Um, and then last up, the, the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. So it's my favourite corny question, but I can resist it. Sorry, Andrew. Uh, yeah, and they um, they only take the um, first five books of the Bible and that they kind of squint even when they read them. But Jesus has to then take them down on their own turf and quote them a text that they would support. Um, but first of all, they, they tell a story and it, they, it's a trick question and they tell a story about... Um, seven brothers, first takes a wife, he died, leaving no offspring, second takes the same wife, he dies, etc. So you've got these seven um, husbands, all of which have lawfully married the same woman, woman one after another, and then they say, and here's the punchline, um, 
in the resurrection, ha ha ha, which we don't believe in, whose wife will she be? Gotcha. As in, it's an absurd idea that uh, resurrection happens because it, would, it wouldn't work. Just, just as a little aside, I've, um, I was talking to Phil about this yesterday and he was saying it's very chilling that how disingenuous and creepy the question comes. So they, they tell the story and then they go, in, in the resurrection, Jesus, you know, we'd, we'd love to know. And we know that they didn't believe in the resurrection. So their words are just completely deceitful. And, and it's a bit like that with the Herodians. You know, teacher, we know that you're true and you don't care about anyone's opinions. You're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? We're just wondering. You know. And just the evil that cloaks what is a murderous trap in such innocent, well-meaning, apparently sincere languages. Yeah, this is an aside, but it is. It does show the the wickedness of the human heart. Yeah, and the, Jesus begins his response with, "Is this not the reason you are wrong?" It's, it's a, you, you know, he's coming up with something <laughs> something good now because he finishes, "You are quite wrong." So, <laughs> so in between the wrong sandwich, he just takes them down, and he says, "You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God." When they rise from the dead, they'll neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he says, look, you you just haven't understood the distinction between this age and the age to come. And marriage is only a pointer to what will be a final marriage. So don't worry about it. And then my favourite passive aggressive question by Jesus. Have you never read in the book of Moses? Um, in the passage about the bush? And it's like, it is the most famous probably. Do you know John three sixteen is tucked <laughs> away there? Yeah, there's this play called Moses. You probably haven't heard of him. And apparently he meets God at a burning bush. You, maybe you haven't read that. Like ever since Sunday school or Saturday school, they know the story. But Jesus assumes you must just be fundamentally ignorant of the Old Testament. Which I love this bit because a lot of scholars today say, in fact, you mentioned it in your sermon, um, that the resurrection is a New Testament idea, or at least it, it emerges at the end of the Old Testament. You know, so... The Old Testament is basically this worldly book and they're looking for this worldly blessings like the promised land and and lots of offspring and so on. And then the idea that actually there might be some land to come and some future world is that only appears later. And it's quite a commonplace idea amongst Old Testament scholars. And Jesus says this is absolutely wrong. The, The idea of resurrection is there at the very start in the law in the book of Exodus. And I, I think the Old Testament scholars would do well to listen to Jesus' critique here because he thinks that the resurrection's been clear from the from the beginning. I heard someone trying to answer the question, where do you first get the doctrine of um, resurrection? And um, I was expecting him to say, well, you, you see Enoch in chapter 5, you know, he's translated without dying, etc. And they said, and that's in chapter 4 because... Of Genesis, this of is. Of Genesis, yeah. <laughs> it's in chapter 4 because you get an, an unjust murder. And so unless you're going to say that God... Um, is okay with injustice we know from that moment there will be a resurrection to judgment <laughs> um yeah so it's 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 not a new development you know it early and it's interesting how you know it here so jesus says haven't you read in the book of the bush in the sorry, book of moses in the passage about the bush god spoke to moses saying i am the god of abraham the god of isaac and the jacob and the god of jacob he's not the god of the dead but of the living it's just it's interesting when you think how this argument works because it's not because of the tense of the verb, I am the God of, rather than I was the God of. Because actually in the Greek original, there's no verb. It's just I, the God of Abraham. 
And actually in the Hebrew that it's quoting from in Exodus 3, there's no verb. It's just I, the God of Abraham. So it's not about the tense. I think it must be just this logic that God doesn't break promises and they don't get the promises fulfilled in their lifetime. So God promised things to Abraham, which he didn't give him. And it's inconceivable that God would break the promise. Therefore, the deadline for when Abraham receives what he's given has to be postponed to after his his death, which is what Hebrews chapter 11 says. You know, that Abraham knew that he was seeking um, a, a better country, a city okay. with foundations whose builder is God. And immediately before the appearance at Exodus 3, God says he heard their cries and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. It's the, the whole context of the deliverance is his faithfulness to these people who put their hope in him. Um, so, yes. And you plug this right back into the parable of the tenants, which is the centre of this. There, there is a resurrection day. There is a future day. And so um, what you do with Jesus in this life is going to come back to bite you or, or, or to bless you, depending, <laughs> depending, but in the, in the life to come. So stop thinking that if only you can get rid of God and, and push him out of your life, then everything's done and dusted and sorted. You know, if only we can get rid of Jesus, then, then we can continue with a republic, you know, with no, with no God ruling us. That this is fantasy because you've not factored in the resurrection. Yeah. The, 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 the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the two big messages, I think, from the whole bit time is lack of fruit of repentance a big deal. They obviously think no. And Jesus goes, let me show you just how big of a deal it is. Um, this is why the vineyard was planted, prophet after prophet. Um, and then they think, well, let's just silence the person who's calling us to repent, Jesus. And they think that's no big deal. And Jesus says, do you know how big of a deal it is? You're silencing the beloved son. Mm. And in a world where the Lord will raise him, um, he will be the, the, the stone that was rejected that becomes the cornerstone. So everything in this section just highlights the significant, the, the seriousness of what they're doing right now. This is Grace Pod. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. If you found it helpful, um, do share it with others, do subscribe. And we're going to work our way through the whole of Mark's Gospel. And then after that, who knows, another part of the Bible. But we'll be going for some weeks and, and we'd love to... Um, share the blessing if it's been a blessing to you. God bless. Thank you for listening to Grace Pod. For more information about Grace Church Greenwich, visit www.greenwich.church.